0: Hello and welcome to the Sub-Zero Coffee Podcast yet again. I'm Kirk Pearson and today we have a really special guest. He's a very whimsical fellow. He's a very funny guy, uh, very experienced coffee person and quite frankly for the topic that we have today, I couldn't think of anyone better to speak with. The topic today is of course decentralization of the coffee industry Uh, with everything that's going on in the world right now being uh, uh, we are in a pandemic. So uh, that has forced closures of shops, uh, forced people to stay in their houses right across the world, which is quite extraordinary because everyone in the world is more or less going through the same thing. My guest today is Ross Quayle. Ross Quayle, welcome.
1: Thanks, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here, mate. Um,
0: Just before we get started, Ross, I just want to introduce you to everyone. Um, You and I have known each other for a few years now. You've obviously got a long list of... um, You've got a you've got a really good resume, I must say, in in the coffee industry, and and not many people know it as well as you do. Um, so very thankful to have you on, and um, let's get let's let's. Where did you start in the coffee industry? What was your first job in coffee?
1: Um, my first job in coffee uh, was as a barista um, at uh, at a cafe called Cafe Triple Five. Uh, in the ground floor of um, King and the Trobe Street uh, building for RMIT. So I was in my, uh, I think it was my second year of um, applied science doing hospitality management at, at RMIT. So that's going back into the 1996,
0: 97 was back then. Wow. So, so was RMIT being the Royal um, Melbourne Royal Institute Melbourne of Inst- Technology. That's yeah. it. So obviously based in Melbourne. Um, and so you're a barista, and, and from there, where did you go? Uh,
1: from there, um, I chanced upon a conversation. I overheard uh, some people discussing a, a, a cafe a roastery in Balaclava on Carlos Street um, called The Coffee Company. Uh, the customers had said that it was a, a coffee roaster that had just had a fight with his um, boss and, uh, and walked out, and uh, I overheard this. Um, and I thought to myself, well, I'm looking for something to do in hospitality. i have been a fine dining waiter. Um, I was working in coffee. Coffee seemed a lot of fun, and people really liked the coffee that I made, and that kind of really interested me because there wasn't that many things um, back then that the sort of people were really religious about food-wise, and so the the whole topic of coffee being really special to people really interested me from a customer service point of view. So I got on a train uh, when I finished my shift. I went down to Carlisle Street, Balaclava. Um, I spoke to a guy who's now sadly passed away. His, name's, uh, his name was Alex Silbisher. And um, I said to him, my name's Ross. Um, I heard you need a coffee roaster. And uh, I'll work for you for two weeks. And if you like me, keep me on. And if you don't, no hassle. And so that was that was the beginning of my time coffee roasting. Um, back then, and it's a it's a really European store. It's still there now. Um, very much Czechs, Poles, Russians. Um, it's a big part of the Jewish community down there. So it's very sort of um, Antipodean and not strongly Italian sort of focused. Mm. Um, that that coffee company started originally in 1956. Uh, that opened. Um, and it was actually part of a, a business called S- Santos Coffee back then, I think if my memory serves me correctly. The business owners then split up and you ended up getting uh, a business that is on Chapel Street, which uh, uh, Giganti, not Giganti, Giganti is it? Um, is it Giganti down on Chapel Street? Um, now owned by a guy called Andy Gelman, um, but that's, that name eludes me, but it split up from there. There was an original owner. A uh, Mr. Fisher, a Hungarian man, and so anyway, that that was the coffee company, and uh, so it was steeped in history. I started there, and you know, back then, this is talking, you know, early two thousands. We were we were doing six hundred, seven hundred kilos of retail coffee a week, no wholesale. So Ridiculous. on a Saturday morning, I worked six days a week for most of my seven years there. Um, we would grind on uh, two Ditting three-phase grinders, um, mm-hmm. 804s. We would grind maybe 200 kilos of coffee for people to take home um, on Saturday mornings probably by 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So it was a really busy business, all measured coffee by hand um, on scales non-digital, just the old school, you know, those scales with the little um, lines that I go over it. everything. I love it. Um, all recipes remembered by heart. So you knew your people, they mixed all sorts of different coffees. I think back then we had uh, about 20 single origins and then about another 15 blends that we served. So, you know, it was 35 different types of coffee and we sold a lot of nuts and chocolates and wafers and a whole lot of European sort of things. And then, um, yeah, it was just, it was a crazy time. So that was my first ex- real deep experience in coffee and I just, I was hooked. I was
0: hooked. Well, that's, and you bring up a few interesting points there, because Melbourne is a very multicultural city, as as you would know, and you 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 um, you mentioned Italians there and the Eastern Europeans, and of course, in that Balaclava era, there is a, a large presence of, of there's, a, there's a very large Jewish community and Eastern European um, presence there, and then you go north of the city, and you've got the Italians. If you go more east towards Richmond, Victoria Street, there's, there's, a heavy Vietnamese culture and I think that's it's magical that you bring that up because it's it just makes me proud to well, be Melbournean.
1: well it is and I think it's one thing that's really missed out a lot of people attribute you know uh, Australia and Melbourne's coffee culture primarily to the Italians and, and I think they've been huge contributors so take nothing away from them but there are Greeks there is the Jewish community through you know um, religion and their related sort of Um, whole sort of, uh, I guess, cultural imports that they brought in that really shaped a lot of aspects to um, Melbourne Coffee. So, I mean, you've got really old businesses like Negrita that have been around doing, you know, the Turkish-style coffee since forever. That's CEO and and that group. And a lot of these people you don't hear about, but they are super solid businesses that have been around for a very, very long time. So um, uh, it's to me, it's it's something that's not as often appreciated as it could be. We we tend to fall in love with the romance of, you know, the the Vespa scooter and uh, and Lygon Street, and 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 that's true. But there is such a depth to the coffee culture that we have. I mean, it, even still, we were I was grinding Turkish coffee back then with freshly roasted. Um, coriander and cumin seeds, when Sri Lankan and, and Indian um, customers would come in with freshly roasted spices, still hot, and we had a spice grinder there that they ground their coffee with. And, you know, they would call it Sri Lankan coffee. Armenian people would come in, we use the same grind setting, and they would say it be Armenian coffee. Turkish people have Turkish coffee, then everybody would take ownership of it. And for me, as a kid from Anglesey, you know, hour and a half south of Melbourne, which is pretty Anglo down there. and Small and, coastal and town Melbourne. as well? Yes, yeah, small coastal town and not a whole lot other than international roads down there. For me to come up to Melbourne, my first experiences and actually one thing that I actually missed out, my first ever espresso coffee in Melbourne was at another seminal place being Quist's on uh, Little Collins Street just across the road from George's wow. uh, which is still there now but uh, that's Jim Baruda, who's is still there now Um, and and that's another part of Melbourne's coffee heritage that's really amazing you know that was again another really beautiful little store that had that uh, strong European sort of edge to it and and again these other places as people that are are places that I look back really really fondly on as some of my first coffee experiences so for me I think yeah there's there's a lot of still untold stories um, that are the basis for shaping all of our uh, uh, you know, the wonderful coffee culture that we've got in Melbourne.
0: Yeah. And, 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 um let's, let's, let's go back to the Italians because you and I sort of cut our teeth working uh, together for an, for an Italian man, Salvatore Melatesta, the owner of St. Ali. And, and that's, that's where I got to know you and you, you spent quite a lot of time. How long were you working at St. Ali for?
1: Uh, uh, just shy of eight years, mm-hmm. and another little-known fact, I actually was working very close to Salvatore in his first cafe and yep. and in, in managing my first. So in my third year of my university degree, I was at um, Melbourne Uni, managing the Melbourne Uni cafe upstairs there, and I'd usually make about a 1,000 coffees a day wow. in my shift between 12, midday and 9 p.m., uh, so it was full on. Um, the uni uh, just did so much coffee. But Sal's first cafe was Plush Sushi downstairs at Melbourne Uni. Mm. And um, he and I were working very close together. Then he bought another cafe, another cafe. So, you know, truth be told, we, we, we started at a very similar time. Yeah. Sal was obviously doing law back then, but I, and I was doing my university. But we didn't know each other that well, but I knew of him. But we were we were working that closely together, so so many years ago.
0: Isn't it fascinating that a lot of, uh, for me personally, my experience, my encounter with coffee, if you like, actually started in uni- university as well. So, you know, the three amigos, myself, you, and Sal, we all, you know, we all went to uni. We. We got our degrees and and we didn't end up using them. It's um, but you're re- you're reaffirming to me, Ross, when you rattle off all these names and you're going back through all this time that you really are a very experienced coffee person. Um, and uh, which is exactly why I wanted to 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 pick your brain today and and let's let's go into a bit more Saint Ali stuff now. When yep. I when I started there, it was I found you a, a, to be honest a little bit intimidating and. It wasn't because you're a a, a rude person, but because when I started, everyone explained to me, oh, that's Ross Quayle. You need to make sure that you make the best coffee for him. Otherwise, you will certainly hear about it. And you remember just as clearly as I do that your morning routine every single morning was to come into St. Ali, you'd have a cappuccino on the bar and you would take away a long black. And every single time, every single time, and I, I still don't know how you did this, but you could guess the TDS, the the total dissolved solids, which is uh, a number that measures the strength of of coffee, and you could guess the exact percentage when you drank it, which I find amazing.
1: Well, to that end, I did this afternoon visit Saint Ali, and Leon made me a cappuccino. Leon Long Leon,
0: Leon Holdsworth, legendary guy. Yeah,
1: Leon, yeah and uh, and it was fantastic. So, I look. Uh, That's very nice of you to say, and you speak very kindly. What what I would say, like many things in coffee in my life, um, if you apply yourself and you ask enough questions and you bother to learn, you can absorb so much. Mm. Um, So for me, in terms of those mornings, the reason why I drank those two coffees was because um, for our business and knowing our community, milk is king. So I took it upon myself to know as much about our milk-based coffee as anyone could possibly do. Because if I knew what our milk coffee tasted like, and if I liked it, and if I could um, make sure that I uh, met the tastes or exceeded the expectations of customer bases in cafes out there, then I knew that we could sell a lot of coffee for St. Ali. So we needed to make something that it was great. That was delicious. But we also needed to make something that hit a chord with the broadest possible uh, number of people because that's what we're there to do. We were there to, to sell Saint Ali coffee. I, I was an owner in the business too, so I had a vested interest. and And a lot of people really didn't. I um, least put the value on milk based coffee. Sometimes uh, you saw people sort of hiding. Average coffee in milk-based blends because it was a way to make the blends, uh, you know, uh, more profitable. But mm. drawing on my WBC stuff, and as you say, I guess maybe I developed a bit of a persona of being a bit more serious. But when you're doing the WBC stuff, I was there to learn. Mm. I really wanted to understand. And I didn't have the ability to do what you did in barista competitions and to do what you know, guys like Matt Perger could do and others, but I knew that I could understand it if I applied myself really heavily. So I, I developed a really fond appreciation for it, but I understood the underlying tone of seriousness to it because it had real ramifications. And like i said to a lot of baristas, if you look at coffee competitions, understand that the very first signature drink was the milk based
0: I was waiting oh. for you to say that I was waiting because I was talking to Todd Suter, who you know very well just before I rang and I said he said to me are you going to get uh, Ross to say the the milk drink is the first thing to drink and I said mate you know he'll say it himself and you did I, I love it and that's a very firmly held consistent belief of yours which I just knew you were going to say it
1: well I knew and and look at and that takes me to another thing which is one of my other passions which is milk more properly and you know very well that I have a passion for milk. And early days, when I was uh, part of my career at Jasper Coffee, which was another real revelation for understanding coffee, I, came, I stumbled across Demeter Biodynamic milk, and I still say to this day, it is the best milk I have ever drunk in my life with coffee.
0: Let's go and there. That is that is you, you're dead right. And um, keep sorry, keep going.
1: No, I just I, I just think that that. Milk-based drink. Again, once you you apply the methodology of coffee competitions and understanding uh, that you're mixing milk with coffee, why wouldn't you want to find the best possible milk to make the best possible drink? Because barista competitions are firstly about one, not losing or throwing away points, and then two, scoring as high on taste because they are the multipliers. So make beautiful coffee and do not waste any points. And so the milk-based drink was something where you had the choice of what ingredient, what milk you were going to use. And back then, I think people just accepted a default. They're good milks, you know. Look, uh, There are milks out there that we don't need to name that, that have been the stalwarts out there, and they're okay. Um, but when people started looking at what makes my cappuccino better than your cappuccino, well, <laughs> you just have to look at it in really obvious terms, the bulk of that beverage is, is is milk. And if there is a better milk out there, why wouldn't you use it? You apply the same mentality to buying quality coffee and, and, and agonizing over roasts. Why wouldn't you agonize over the milk you use? And so Demeter for me just, I mean, even Matt's coffees at the Melbourne WBC were in my mind some of the best cappuccinos I've ever drunk in my life. I mean, Finishing cows on different grasses mm. and then separating those out and then tasting their um, resultant you know um, beverages with the coffee that he chose again is, is pure specialty you know and it only happens in a small sort of a window of opportunity when you can do these things and that 's why I love competitions but it just proved the point to people that looking at at milk um, underscored the value of of flavour in your coffee. So for me, I mean I just that's why going full full circle back to Ali drinking a a long black and drinking a um a cappuccino, uh, and with obviously no chocolate. The cappuccinos were just that perfect blend of of rich milk um and coffee that just allowed you just to get that whole picture of what that coffee's doing. And then and then the black coffee obviously gave me not our milk based coffee, not being orthodox, gave me the chance to drink whatever we were doing from a, a single origin point of view. So, for me, every one of those coffees was homework that I was enjoying every yeah. day.
0: And uh, just on the whole Matt Perger thing, for anyone who may be listening that is wondering what we're talking about, so Matt Perger, uh, obviously a very prominent, in, uh, prominent coffee figure, uh, competed in the 2013 World Brewster Championship, and in that routine he, as Ross said, he actually got certain cows and put them into different sections and they started feeding these cows different things, uh, which had impacts on their digestive system and noticed flavor differences between uh, each cow that was being fed different things. And he even named the cow uh, whose milk that he used, he called it freckles, and that yep. which, which was an interesting, interesting thing at the time. And you quite rightly bring up... Um, Uh, demeter milk which is uh the main supplier which was mark peterson a farmer um who who i've met and i've been to his farm and he's a very very kind guy and he practices biodynamics i don't really understand biodynamics in full but seeing the impact of it was was quite astounding because you you'll literally go to mark's farm and he he doesn't use any pesticides he doesn't worm his cows which in agricultural practices um very, I guess you could say he's an outlier, Um, and his soil uh, actually retains more carbon and more moisture. And so when we went there, I went there with um, Shinsako Fukuyama, and that was two years ago. Uh, And we went there and we we went into his paddock and it was very lush and green. And of course, Australia has been in a huge drought for the best part of three or four years now and you dig up a piece of the the soil and it's still nice and moist and there's a, a healthy root system going down and you look over at the paddock next door and I kid you not 50 meters away you dig it up and it was dust and so I guess where I'm going out with this is he was able to maintain the quality of his land and the quality of his, of his feed the quality and the health of his cows and Produces this wonderful milk, which is when w- what we had at St. Ali at the time was unhomogenized, so the fat wasn't removed from it and it was just creamy deliciousness. It was heaven.
1: And, and there was always back then, too, there was this sort of disinformation campaign against unhomogenized milks because people said they're inconsistent or they're this or that. I think it all just came from ignorance because the moment I started drinking unhomogenized milks, I just experienced a different flavor. And as I said, Mark just displays a commitment to um, full immersion in the practice of biodynamics such that it can prove to you that it really, really does make a difference. And you can be a lay person, you can go there and you can understand it, but it takes tremendous courage Um, to do that and there are people that do it in coffee there are are baristas that do it there are roses that do it that commit and fail but commit and learn and so I I just think he's he's one of the unsung heroes um, uh, of the dairy industry and look he it also is Demeter more broadly which is a a certification for biodynamics that that also is you know to be um, commended here but it's just there's Something about being willing to fail, being willing to be unpopular, or, or through being more expensive or different or weird or what have you, that has really been, um, I guess, drivers to innovation in our industry. Craig, you know, you just can't underscore the value of people thinking differently. I mean, you've got from, you know. Uh, People treating their coffee roasting different to people choosing different milks uh, to people choosing, you know, hey, this is a big uh, uh, deli grinder uh, like an Ek forty three. Let's uh, let's use this and then let's sieve all the grounds. I mean, you've got to be one part crazy mm. um, to start thinking and doing all these things. But ultimately, they've contributed to doing things. So, I mean, <laughs> I like to think. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead.
0: Well, that's probably an excellent segue into sort of where we're going next with WBC, and that's it's a really big driver for innovation in in the coffee industry. So WBC being the World Brewster Championship, and to get to the WBC, you have to qualify by winning your national Brewster competition. Which of course Matt did back in 2013, and he uh, of course, as you as you mentioned, used a spi- uh, a grinder that was originally used for spices, which was the malconic Ek 43. And that routine was an absolute game changer. And I think after that, you saw that particular grinder, which wasn't popular. It, it wasn't popular in the industry. I, it was used in very isolated cases, as I understand. But that, that grinder, after that routine, it changed the industry.
1: Well, he was also changing it when he used the UK 43 for the World Brewers' Cup title as well, mm. remembering that um uh preceded that if I'm not incorrect in, in Austria where Matt and I went over um and I was acting as a uh I wouldn't say a a, a, a dedicated coach, but I was there as his support team and he and I traveled over to Austria and he used that and he was is using that grinder and then yeah it just the success of it has really just been mind boggling. Um uh, the, the, yeah, those routines. I mean, yeah, that, that's why I do WBC stuff, or I have done, and not so much recently for, for a variety of different reasons, but my, I'll never lose a love for those um, performances from people that win and people that don't win because they're, they're just, there's so many little moments in it, Kirk, that um, have taught me things that I have then taken somewhere else and applied and learnt and grown and developed. And so I really feel really, really fortunate that. I'm able to use the experiences that I've had to actually do more good and actually contribute more because without, for me, the WBC, that was my window into um, professional coffee. Mm. I mean, you have to look back on all these things and go, well, where does anyone ever go to school for coffee? Well, you know, you can go to TAFE and you can do a basic um, prepare and serve espresso, but there's, there's arguments for and against that. Um, But the WBC, uh, me deciding to go in and commit to being a judge and doing about 15 years on the Australian circuit and 12 years on the WBC, that was the apprenticeship along with working with Saint Ali and other businesses that um, contributed to my successes. You know, in, in total today, I mean, uh, so so the WBC was an education platform for me to understand what people were doing what people love drinking and what people were thinking about um, uh, could be the future of coffee. And,
0: and becoming, so to me, becoming a judge isn't really an easy process either to uh, nowadays. Uh, anyway, there's, there's lots of work that, that comes into to finding and preparing the, the people that will judge barista competitions nowadays. And, and they go through all sorts of calibrations and, they're, they're made to taste a lot of things, and they really need to be on an even keel to be able to, to be able to to properly judge people. Because it's in, in many ways, it's 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 almost as tough a job as competing. Because a lot of these people are uh, they're, they're thinking, well, I don't want to screw this up because I could ruin a really prominent competitor's you know competition, or he's you know you know put a dent in his career. And it's quite a daunting job in and of itself, right?
1: I agree and I disagree. Okay. Um, I'd say I really look forward to those performances. I loved it. I love focusing on detail and trying to understand what someone's going to say. So to me, I really enjoyed judging yep. um, because um, I was learning, but I was I was having experiences with coffee that were making the hair stand up on my neck. So you, you couldn't be anything but excited. So I have to say for me, and, and, and some judges are different, I don't get nervous. I don't have a feeling of trepidation when I'm sitting down when someone's going to serve me a cup of coffee. I will say that my my attention is one hundred percent focused on what they're saying, what they're doing, and what they're giving me because I am um, fixated on understanding what they're trying to say, what their message is. So for judging, I think there's a there's a really good balance between, at least for me, Quieting the mind and allowing yourself to see and understand everything. Um, It's very easy when you're judging to be distracted by your own thoughts, separate to the other comings and goings that are going on in front of you, but also having the presence of mind to understand what are you judging right now and what are the rules that I apply in order to give that a score right now. Those are the skills I think people find the most difficult because they're trying not to look at themselves on the big screen that's up in front of them. They're trying to make sure that they've listened to everything the barista has said to them and they stare how many times or they pick up the cup or they they write down what they're told and all those types of things. Um, And so that can be quite difficult when judges apply pressure to themselves to do them all because the pressure becomes a distraction from the focus that you need just to listen and do as you're told. Mm. Um, Pete Licata would have been amongst the first that started to really apply that and he did it in Colombia in Bogota at the WBC when he had said to judges I want you to take your pen and I want you to start writing this down. I want you to look for this and I want you to look for that and all of a sudden you, you know every single word you were getting every single word because you were told to because prior to that um, when a barista was talking, you were, you were never expected to be writing because writing would take your focus away from what they were saying. Mm. And I luckily as a judge have always had a pretty good recall. So I a lot of the times I don't need to write things down. I can remember all the key elements from a barista performance and then take it all in, take the coffee in, I can score and then I can step out of the um, of the performance area, and then go and then write down my thoughts there. So, but that is, that is the, one of the big challenges for people is how do they remain present, but all, how how also do they retain? And I say, I can only say that the training these days is to teaching you how to give you that ability, and and apply it um, in the most fair and even manner that you can, and and obviously learn how to enjoy it too, because I, I mean. It can be a real stress judging. I mean, hopefully it isn't for people, but it, it it should be enjoyable. It should be it should be intense, but it should be something that you really cherish because there nothing about being served great coffee should be a burden.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> I think I guess this is a we're we're getting onto some really interesting interesting stuff here because there would be people listening to this that knowing you having been the head judge at the World Brewster Competition many times, um, it's hard. Barista competitions are very subjective, so um, it's, it's really hard to, to sort of put together something and know that with that performance you are going to win because there's absolutely no guarantee because it's all about what you do on the day and how well it's received. And following on from that, I, I would ask you, Rosquale, what can, what can you tell Anyone who's listening to this and wants to compete in a barista competition right now, what are probably the, what are the most important things that they should remember, and what are the things they should probably not dedicate and apply so much time to?
1: Well, I think you've got to take that Mark Peters approach, and you've got to be courageous enough to commit to your idea, you know, without wavering, um, and and marry that with knowing every single word of the rules. If you don't understand the rules, you can't create a routine that can be received and scored in order to win if that is your intention. Mm -hmm. I think some people go to barista competitions to make a point and you can still get some great performances in that, but not all of those points can be appreciated on a score sheet. So I think the point is, for people is to understand what, what do you want to achieve out of a rooster competition? Do you want to achieve recognition because you can? There have been brilliant performances that have been remembered um, for year on year. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can go back to London and look at Scottie Callahan's performance in London. You can look at um, Colin Harmon doing his water routine in London. Um, you can you can you can look at so many other routines that still influence people that didn't win. Um, but also, if you want to look at winners, you've got to look at people that tick every box and that gear their routines towards the score sheet, appreciating them to the maximum degree. Mm. So, from my point of view, um, you know, get your motivations clear, align yourself with the rules, and make sure that the three courses of drinks that you serve make a memorable sensory experience in every sense of the word. Yeah. Don't have a, a great espresso that is just, you know, ho-hum and milk. You, you need to hit it out of the park. If you can do latte art, do every bit that you can and be as, pack as much as in you can because it's all uh, an exhibition of skill in, in flavour and taste and performance. And I think, you know, be able to communicate what your passion is um, clearly because I think sometimes we have like an understanding of the implied meaning but we don't really know what it is. So there's there's another element to Barista routines, which is to really workshop them with people that sometimes aren't coffee people. Um, get people to give you feedback. Is my routine, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Um, and probably one of the best exponents and one of the hardest workers in that level would be um, Sasha Sestich. Yeah. I mean, that guy can you know, he, he didn't win. He finished down the order year and year and year. And I think probably seven years of relentless commitment and, and sitting down with me doing debriefings and other judges and just asking the questions, how can I improve? How can I do better? He never asked, you know, why did you why did you not like this? He said, what could I do better? What do I need to improve? And that's that's probably a great example of, of the commitment to learn and deliver based on winning a competition and scoring enough points to win it and match, marrying his passion with it. And that, That's probably one of the best examples that I can give you.
0: And, and you, you, you said before you, you had those notable performances. What were some of the, I guess, for, for those that watch a barista competition, you can see um, who composed competitors are. You can see who, who the ones that are confident are but what are the best coffees that, have you, that you've that you been delivered and who delivered them?
1: Well, the first one that comes to mind is um, my first year that I had judged a world final, and that was in Dublin. And it was Berg Wu in the final who served um, uh, Finka Deborah, think, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And uh, interestingly, I think I had already tried that co- that coffee um, pre-competition because um, we were looking to shortlist something for Eddie Pan, who was then the Thailand Barista Champion and also the roaster for Sensory Lab. Yep. And we, I, I tasted that coffee with Lucy Ward and both of us said, that's a competition coffee because it is unmistakably good clarity and flavours and just delicious. Anyway, yep. for... for for reasons I won't go into, we we weren't able to use that coffee. Um, However, it was revisited in the final with Berg, and I have never seen so many sixes on a score sheet um, when I sat down with all the judges after it. It it, it was a coffee that I'll forever remember. Um, I think he described it as um, Mandarin Juice Jasmine Flowers, were the two key descriptors yep, and it, and it was everything that a coffee could be being mandarin Juice and Jasmine Files. I just thought it was lovely. It, it sounds very cliche, but in that moment, um, without even being swept away, it was just an extraordinary coffee uh, that um, I just felt really... Um, I felt so lucky after that performance to have been able to drink that coffee then and have it in that moment because, like you know, with Sub-Zero... Um, Trying to preserve that moment in coffee is something that people chase. And back mm-hmm. then, you couldn't do that. Um, you're pioneering that movement now, which is which is amazing. But I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get that ever again once I've had it and tasted it, and it was a gift. Yeah. So apart from that, I mean, look, there, there's almost too many to mention in terms of great coffees. I've had wonderful coffees from from Matt. I've had I've had great coffees from Todd. Yep. Um, uh you know, Eddie Pan's done some wonderful things too. Um, but, I mean, between Colin Harmon to um, uh, who else? And it's hard to name them all. I've had the John Gordon's performance in Melbourne um, where he did have some, some technical difficulties, but his coffee there was extraordinary. Um, uh, Pete lacarta's done some wonderful things. I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, the list just goes on. Um well, and, and sometimes, Kirk, to be honest, and to be a little bit sort of um, uh, romantic about it, sometimes it 's the coffee and the performance, um, yep. and sometimes it 's just the coffee as a standalone where you just think well, wow I, i've just never had anything like that ever
0: well and you you're, you're really reflecting here on what are the golden years of coffee because um obviously right now what's going on in the world we've there's been a global health pandemic i don't think anyone saw it coming even in january and february and it's really taken the world by storm and it's changing the world and the coffee industry as we know it and um you know i, I think it's wonderful that you've you've got these these memories in your bank that you're that you're able to reflect on and and you know what we might have to cherish those forever because we just don't know what's going to happen in the future. And this is, you know, I'm really glad we, we, we spoke about WBC, but you know, I think one of the really important things that I wanted to talk to you about today is where we go to from here with the coffee industry. Um, and it's, it's, it's troubling times.
1: Yeah, it is. But, um, you and I've spoken on this, uh, the, The behavioral facts about what's going on today in coffee Mm -hmm. appear to be no one has stopped drinking the amount of coffee that they usually drink. What they are doing is that they're just not getting as many coffees from cafes because obviously isolation um, and rules come into effect, but people are buying more coffee at supermarkets. We know that. The Aldi's, the Coles, the Woolworths, retail coffee sales are... Enormous compared to what they were. Yeah. People's online business has grown, but the wholesale um, bean to cup market, the cafe market, has suffered greatly. You know, probably, you know, probably I, I wouldn't be uh, overstating it to say eighty to ninety percent reduction in that business. Um, uh, but it has all been taken back up uh, largely by the grocery sector, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, that people are. Refusing to not drink coffee, they're going to continue to drink it, and I think that leads just you know, as you were saying, to this the next evolution, which is the home espresso market, because people understand that we have we have brilliant teachers, we have a generation from those golden years now, Kirk, we have a generation of educated, experienced baristas that are now in their late thirties and forties sometimes older than our professionals that thoroughly understand coffee on a number of levels, mm. and especially in a domestic level. So they're out there teaching, they're providing guidance, and they're helping that home market to evolve. We've got roasters that are delivering fresh product on time, wonderfully sourced, supported by probably you know um, very affordable sea uh, price um, specialty coffees, so it's very affordable, And there is a dearth of equipment out there um, uh, that allows people now to access. Now people have got Ek43s at home, but there's, you know, they've also got every type of home espresso machine from, you know, the 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 strides forwards that Breville and Sunbeam have done in that market to even the pod market is evolving greatly. And you can love it or hate it, but the reality is, um, I think what people are doing is they're striving to become the best within their particular category um and that's what's making the domestic market really turn on its head and and say well man this i don't need to go out i, I can literally can make the coffee of my dreams at home
0: and that's a um, that's an interesting point because if we're to localize this issue Melbourneians melburnians can't go without coffee i just can't imagine melbourne without coffee it, it just wouldn't happen and um it's 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 very interesting what you raise because one of the first things i would have thought you know not i i, I sit comfortably within the industry and you know it, sometimes it's hard to sort of exit my sort of position within it and to to think to think outside the box like i i was originally initially thinking well i think if everyone's going to if everyone's going to lockdown and everyone a lot of people are losing their jobs I would have thought if, if anyone's trying to prudently manage their household budget, a coffee, a $4 coffee out is probably the first thing that's going to go. But what you're presenting here is that, okay, maybe they're not going to go to a cafe and buy a latte, but they're, they're refusing to, to not drink coffee, which is fascinating.
1: But, you know, that's exactly right, and we have this evolution of um, large-scale roasters also entering the market that have got excellent specialty coffee foundations, which means that the mass market coffees out there are not done by the, the industry incumbents that are the you know the 30 and 40 and 50-year-old companies. You've got companies that are 10 or 12-year-old or 15-year-old companies that have been heavily involved in WBC or coffee competitions of some sort that are out there that have scaled up their business, right? And now they're producing the coffee in the supermarkets. You've, you've got people like um, Ducali, you know, um, as a specialty roaster, and to their brand presence in, say, Coles supermarkets, that's a very big change. And when I mean, you look at the brands that have been in there previously, and no disrespect to any of those brands, but something like Jacari is is a very different offering. And so that really is a sign of the times.
0: And it's, it's it's another thing I'd I'd like to bring up here is a few years ago when when Blue Bottle sold to Nestle. An observation that I that I had presented to me uh, by Matt Perger was that um, Blue Bottle then they weren't so focused on wholesale coffee; they were focused a lot on retail, and they sold for what was it like six hundred million dollars US or something? Like, the the number mm-hmm. evades me, but it was a, a, well, some, a huge figure like
1: 40, time, forty times earnings or something like
0: that. Yeah, and so and and. Did am I correct in saying that they they focus a lot on on retail coffee as opposed to wholesale? Yes. And yep. and I've been to Blue Bottle when I was in Japan last year and 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 enjoyed it and it it was and I've always looked at it through that lens now and and that I'm looking at them in a situation like COVID-19 and although they would have retail stores, you know, all throughout America, Japan and and wherever else that perhaps you know, companies like that that focused on retail, uh, you know, are faring well in situations like this.
1: Well, I think if that, if their conditions are the same as us, where um, there are a restriction level that still allows takeaway coffee, but it doesn't allow the guy in, more well, great. Mm. <laughs> Maybe not to. Um, sarcastic but um the free wi-fi and the cup of coffee that you sit on for three hours or five hours in the cafe while you write your memoirs mm. uh doesn't happen anymore now it's grab a coffee and off you go and um some people it's better business yeah well, I mean, there's some cafes that i know that are doing more than they ever did before because i just do takeaway they have two people working they're working hard and making great coffee but there's no table service there's no anything else and that really is that model of the grab and go, um, and so to some people, I mean, I think they've just been very fortunate that their model is still um, supported in in um, you know the conditions that are brought about by a global pandemic.
0: And what and, and if for those for those uh, business owners that do buy coffee from a wholesaler and. Um, Let's, let, let's try and think of, a, of the situation once in Australia where we're currently in stage three restrictions, which pretty much means um, you can go out to exercise and, and, and to the grocery store. And if, if you're found to be doing anything um, unnecessary or unessential, as the government uh, coins the term, it, you, you'll be fined, um, which, yep. obviously has, which obviously has had a huge impact on almost every business in Australia after this after those i guess restrictions uh are lifted um what future is there for for you know a cafe in the city that services you know thousands of business uh you know white collar workers and what, what what future are there for cafes you know to invite people back in to have a meal you know where, what does the industry look like after this
1: well i think it's still going to be all right i think what what we have to zoom out and we say, okay, Melbourne and, and Australia had saturated coffee markets, and there's been plenty of people who have said that. Mm-hmm. Some of that has been fueled by easy access to finance, mm-hmm. um, uh, historically low green coffee prices, um, and uh, large audiences of takeaway coffees and, and consumers drinking more coffee, and, and obviously providing, you know, uh, there's high levels of demand. Now, after this, A lot of those enablers to the market are going to disappear. I mean, it's not easy to get finance now. So if you don't have your own money, you're not going to be able to buy a machine. Um, If you don't have sufficient cash reserves, then you're going to go broke or you'll go out of business. And that was already happening in high competition. This um, uh, COVID-19 conditions has really just brought that to a much quicker end result. Which is, if you're if you're not in a healthy business um, scenario, then this is unfortunately and really sadly going to create financial ruin for a lot of businesses.
0: And it's interesting you point out there, sorry to interrupt, Ross, but it's interesting you point out there the uh, uh, finance aspect of this. And I, I, noted, I noticed yesterday that the National Australia Bank, one of the biggest um, banks in Australia, downgraded its its profit projection by 51%. And that's, you know, that's, that's happened rather quickly and that's going to, um, that's... You know that's within two months, and you know we're not even at the end of financial year yet. So to make that projection is is pretty astonishing, and and it, it sort of reaffirms what you're saying that to be to access finance is going to be hard, and which is also peculiar in a way because interest rates in Australia are the lowest they've ever been.
1: Yeah, but without demand um, for a product, then you'll see people seriously reevaluate their willingness to support others to create a business where there is a lack of demand. Mm. So people who loan money spend a lot of time trying to figure out where the demand is and then trying to fuel that demand to create um, revenues in that. And, and that's the you know, the really interesting part, it, probably for another day, of macro and microeconomics. But mm-hmm. I think the, the positives out of all of this, because it's very easy to look at the negatives, what yeah. are the positives out of this? Well, we're going to have booming tourism by Australians seeing Australian places. Do you think after this, how many people are going to fly to America or fly to Bali or fly here? They're they're not going to go do that. They can't most of the time. And if they do, they may feel unsafe. So a lot of people are going to second guess where they're going to go, which means a lot more people are going to spend their tourism dollars locally. And that's going to be fantastic and, and um, that's that's probably
0: that's, that's and it would be particularly good for those people that were affected by the bushfires this year. Uh, of course,
1: well, that's exactly right, and that's why people already said, you know, I'm going to travel with an empty esky. I'm going to buy a pie here. I'm going to buy, you know, go to Malacuta and go and have a beer in the pub. I'm going to do this, and people are really going to look back towards what's in Australia. So that's a really great outcome, and and you're also going to see. Um, a return to businesses that are um, focused on, you know, with a strong connections within their locality. They'll have deeper connections with their customers because they know where they're from. They know they live around them. So people are going to go and, you know, drink coffee where they know. So it's that wonderful loyalty that will come about. So the businesses that are left after this, I think, will flourish. I think they're going to be very busy because where there was 25 cafes, There may only be 5 to 10, but that 5 to 10, like we've already spoken about, are still going to fulfill a demand level because people haven't stopped drinking coffee. The big curveball is how many people change their coffee habits from going out and spending their $4.50 or $4 or whatever the case may be on their coffees out and change their habits and go, I'm going to make my coffee on my coffee machine the way I like it and the way I've learned from x y and z out there and i'll make my first coffee in the morning and my three to four coffees a day that i have i'll probably buy one out but i'll make the other ones myself because i want to be a little bit more careful with what i do with my dollars and cents because this whole pandemic thing t- showed me well hey saving money is a, is a good thing yeah Right, so that's that element that we've got to see balance out there's this there's,
0: there's, there is something else i'd like to 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 ask you ross and I was talking to a, a friend who who is working as a roaster at a roaster here in Victoria, in Australia, and he sort of presented an issue to me that I hadn't really thought of. But doesn't really, it, it doesn't seem. Um, it's not really surprising that this issue has arisen. Is that the importation of green coffee might be an issue for for a little while now because there there was there was a case in, in very recently, I think it was last week in Melbourne where, where people working at the wharfs were refusing to unload containers that were coming from China because of the risk to their because, because of the perceived risk to their health. Um, and then of course, there could be complications in freight all around the world. There's massive, massive disruption there. Do you think there could be an op- a, a, a problem on the supply side of coffee? So that being us being able to access green coffee.
1: Honestly, I don't think so. And and I put it together like this. And I touched on before what demand does and what it allows people to do. If I was to sort of you know hypothesize now, so you have strong demand for coffee, which means when there's strong demand, people want to want to meet that demand. So um, people may not want to. Um, Uh, unload coffee but somebody else then sees an opportunity where they can make money to charge more for a service that someone else is willing to provide. And so you'll then have potentially somebody specialising in green coffee shipping um, potentially or something of that nature because they will see that the demand needs to be fulfilled. People's desire to drink coffee won't stop. We've established that. Mm. So um, I think it'll bring about um, potentially higher costs to shipping, but it won't stop the importation of green coffee. People will just say, well, I have to take the, all these other extra precautions and that's going to cost you this much. And some people will be predatory and say, well, if demand is high, that means I'm in a seller's market. So my services now just went up 10 20%. And, that, and that's your outcome to it. I mean, you, you can look at, you know, uh, this is a slight, um, tangent, but um, storing airplanes is now a big business. You've got um, uh, airplane storage uh, is a particular uh, uh, thing in that you need a dry climate to maintain um, airplanes. So in Alice Springs, for instance, there's a thriving business with um, aviation um, storage and um, where people are now storing so many aeroplanes because it doesn't make sense or it's not good to store them in humid climates. So there's 30, 40, 50 aeroplanes sitting out somewhere in in Alice Springs where where people are making huge amounts of money, not a huge amount of money, but much more than they used to because those aeroplanes can't be used now, but they have to be stored somewhere. That's fascinating. So so these things are happening. um, And so I don't think, to your point, Anything will stop the importation of green coffee um, uh, our importation levels you know relative to the world are relatively minuscule right? I don't I don't think that we're, we're that huge on the Richter scale so supplying our needs um, will be uh, not a difficult thing in so far shipping but if it means that people um, really need it then that means that someone can affordably charge a little bit more um, which leads you to the situation that does that mean that Roasted coffee costs more out there, which will mean that cafes will be then lumping that and the consumer has it at the end, which only feeds back to my initial point is, will it become too expensive to drink coffee out for some people or to drink as many coffees out for some people? What happens if coffee goes to $6 a cup? Does that mean that the home market then explodes because people are getting 50 50 coffees out of a kilo of coffee that they bought for
0: $50? Well, I I would... um Another interesting way I'd like to look at this, or to pick your brain about, is is what's the impact on on farmers going to be? Is this good news for coffee farmers? Uh, you know, it, not good news. Is it? Is is the is the appearance or it, is there something to be optimistic about for a coffee farmer at the end of all this? If you know it's all well and good, and if these middlemen, you know, charge a, a few extra bucks and you know we're able to shit the coffee ball. What about coffee farmers? Because working in specialty coffee, I think. You know has an implied um agreement in a, in a, in the sense that you want to do better for the world and y- you know and coffee farmers are in the overwhelming majority of cases they're they're kind of they 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 get the they get the short straw they don't get as much money as they probably should, and they of course they have suffered horrifically through low commodity prices with with the huge uh harvest in Brazil a few years ago you know the market fluctuates so much. Is there anything to be optimistic about if you're a coffee farmer through this?
1: Well, people aren't going to stop drinking coffee. I think that's the one thing to be optimistic about on, on, on the surface level. Unfortunately, with um, uh, global warming in certain countries, uh, the production of coffee has perfect conditions. So as you've talked about, Brazil increasing their production year on year uh, and coffee being obviously a speculative market um, that is driving the price down. Um, and so uh, when uh, you have uh, large amounts of um, available supply and um, and, and supplies uh, greater than the demand, well, then you're going to see um, uh, lower prices. That's just the basic economics of it. Mm. And realistically, specialty coffee is not a large percentage of the global coffee production mm. so um that also makes it more difficult um in that this oversupply tends to eat away at the peripheral markets that specialty coffee has as its niche because the prices are, are, are compelling and um, for some people enough i'd
0: yeah. love to look at um i'd love to look at microlots as well because obviously what i do is i package and serve you know exquisite cups of coffee they're expensive as they are um, already. And, you know, that's that's essentially all I do and I love it. But what about micro lots? Do you think people are um, – is that going to be prohibitive, prohibitively expensive in the future? And do you think farmers will still pay a lot of attention to that or will, will it be a niche in the market where they think, well, bugger it, I'll just – I'll put all my effort into – to making all this amazing coffee and, and specialty specialty coffee or, or micro lot coffee. What does the future hold for that sort of section of the industry?
1: Well, we're leaving out a stakeholder in that. And um and I had this um discussion with some um, I always mispronounce her name, but Aida Batley mm-hmm. and um uh, Rachel from
0: Rachel Peterson Esmeralda. from Esmeralda. Yeah. Rachel
1: Peterson Esmeralda. And I said this to them. I said, look, you've got some of the best coffees going out there. You've got amazing coffee. And and the situation is you're entirely reliant on the quality of the people buying your product. They're roasting. That is what determines your success in my mind mm. because that, that person can buy your coffee and you're – you know, you'll think of Esmeralda, okay, amazing coffee. You win at, um, uh, you know, uh, Best of Panama, all these different things, right? So people see that and then they try it. But then they go to a roaster and they try that same coffee roasted by somebody and sometimes it's been butchered. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just ho-hum. Sometimes it's just okay.
0: Yeah.
1: And we forget. And I asked this question of Rachel. I said, why don't you specify the way you roasted it in the competition and share that. She said, well, that's not necessarily our prerogative to tell people how to roast it. I'm like, well, I would disagree to a point there because what happens uh, with the absence of information, you get a vacuum and then people make up their own determinations on quality. And see, the thing is, if that experience of that coffee, amazing coffee, is a poor one with the consumer, The consumer's not left with many other ways to make up their mind as to the quality of that coffee kit. Mm. So I really, really sadly, sometimes these specialty coffee farmers are at the whim of the roasting preferences of these roasters out there because they're really the ones that are then presenting this coffee to the broader market. And I don't know if many people understand enough the crucial role that roasters um, have in the success of specialty coffee,
0: and this is this is probably uh, an area where you know I'm learning a lot about every single day because of course I buy coffee from roasters all around the world, and which has been such a big learning curve for me because to to make each one is different. So you know, for example, a a Saint Ali coffee performs differently to something roasted by Mariyama. And something roasted by April Coffee in Denmark, it tastes completely different to maybe a passenger coffee in London, and then it, it just goes on and on. And and you're right, everyone does roast differently, and some people do, it, some roasters do it, you know, substantially better than others. And to name a few, Momo's Coffee in South Korea, I think some of the some of the best coffee I've ever had has come from them, and and this I've had that those coffees roasted by other people and it was nowhere near as good but Momo's doing a fantastic job I'd point to someone in Australia like Ben Toovey, uh former number two in the world in the World uh, world Coffee Roasting Championship doing a fantastic job someone like Sam Cora from Owner Coffee Eddie Pan you know the list goes on and on but you're right there are echelons of skill in coffee roasting and um, there are certainly roasters that do a substantially better than, uh, job than others and for for to get to take it back to the to the producers, it's almost like a branding issue. You know, your coffee is recognised if you're Aida Butler or or Rachel Peterson or Rachel Adam Adam Overton from Geisha Village. Your there's a substantial element of branding there, and I guess what um, where we're going with this is that should be in the right hands, and there's there's probably an opportunity for roasters or uh, producers, I, I should say to manage where that
1: goes? Or, or producers to forward vertical integrate. So they Do can... producers have enough money and with the innovations in coffee, Kirk, can, can you imagine, just sort of, you know, um, go with me on the journey that producers begin roasting their own coffee and selling their roasted coffee when it's stored it, uh, under the right conditions and packaged the right way uh, at maybe shipped at you know negative 30 degrees or whatever it is, and then sell the roasted coffee themselves to keep their branding and to keep their message as they intended it. Do is is that a potential way that the future will evolve? Well, it I could mean, will be. people? Yeah. Is there a gap in the market? You know, you often see washing stations that are owned by somebody that people bring their coffee to a washing station, and then sell it on. Are we going to see the advent of roasting stations in a lot of these countries?
0: Well, I mean, Whereby, yeah, there's pros and cons to that as well. I mean, I like the stylistic elements of of people's roasting, and you know, some of it I wouldn't want to see go. But I guess for a message, if if it did make it on the whole better, and you got a more consistently excellent experience, then that's also great.
1: Well, it, look, let's be honest. It's worked for Illy. Mm-hmm. It's worked for Lavazza. Um, although they'll have to roast their coffee locally here, but I mean, you're talking about big, global is coffee businesses that roast coffee, and it is some time between the green procurement and the roasting before that a consumer finally drinks that cup of coffee. and that coffee is selling very well. Mm. So we, you know, could this drive innovation at that level? I mean, I believe um, having been to um, uh, Fazenda Ceratuzinha in Brazil, I, um, I went there farm. as well. Yeah, and Fazenda Um Ceratuzinha has their own product roasting plant on the farm.
0: Mm. And it's probably a good time to mention here, actually, that you know, in, re- in realistically, not all producers are you know below the poverty line, so to speak. When I was in Brazil, well, and I, I won't. I won't chuck out names here, but we stayed with a producer, and you know he had a chef in his kitchen, and, and a driver, and and um, you know they they cooked us this wonderful meal, and we got chauffeured around everywhere, and um, so I mean it, I guess it's fair to point out that not all producers are below the poverty line, um, and so and following on from that would have the capacity to probably do something like this.
1: Well, all it takes is. Someone with enough passion and commitment to follow the idea, idea through to figure out whether it's going to pass or fail, and you know, there are the world is full of entrepreneurs taking risks like that every day. So maybe that's what we'll um, we'll see. I mean, who would have thought that um, pod coffee? and you go back to year 2000 or before that, that pod coffee would be as popular as what it is today. Mm. You know, and 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 that when you look at it in its purest form and, and, and you know, obviously there's pros and cons to pod coffee. I mean, um, but let's not to delve into that. Look at it in its purest form. Mm. You're, if you're a parent of a child from five to 15 years old, right, pod coffee allows a child without danger to basically go and prepare of coffee for their parents they oh. take a pod they put it in a the machine they press a button put a cup underneath and they can walk over to the parents and give it to them you can't make a cup of tea that easily I suspect us, a
0: I suspect that this is probably what you're getting your daughters to do for you right now
1: <laughs> no, no, my daughters don't make pod coffee they they appreciate um, a commercial or, or, a or, machine have, that or have you had in house. have you and trained them learned, to make you a
0: pour over or a cappuccino have you uh,
1: look Uh, homeschooling is a challenge and uh, Coffee 101 uh, hasn't made it to the top, but uh, necessity is another invention, let me say that. So when we get to that time, uh, we'll do it. But for now, my eldest daughter makes a pretty decent cup of coffee, Um, uh, but uh, wanting to do it for me when I would like it is not always the timing that I have. So. uh, but you know
0: it, it's it's an imperfect world, and Ross, I could speak to you all day, and you've been very generous with your time and I, I really do thank you for this and Just before we sort of finish up i i just what what are you doing right now like uh, are you, what 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 can um what are you doing in the coffee industry, and what are you willing to share about that
1: well, right now um I started a new role as uh, director of sales for uh, South Asia for a company called Hemro. Ironically, um, uh, the EK43 is a Malconig uh, grinder. So I look after Malconig, uh, Anfim, Ditting, and another brand called Hay Cafe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm really enjoying working with with an equipment supplier, uh, looking at Um, meeting the trends that the market is um, delivering. I think grinders have a tremendous amount, coffee grinders have a tremendous amount of innovation Mm -hmm. in them that can deliver greater value to people. So right now, um, I take uh, phone calls from home and I sit there and I think about how we can better meet the needs of the evolving cafe but also the evolving home markets. And I feel really um, fortunate to still be in a position to be readily employable. And to be able to continue to deliver value and make people happy about drinking a cup of coffee, so I'm uh, I'm gainfully employed, and I'm reminded of the um, uh, the good fortune that I've had by being involved in the coffee industry, and realistically, just lucky that I get to drink coffee and see people in cafes. I mean, it's a it's a wonderful life, and I'll I'll never take it for granted.
0: Well, mate, it's it's. So good to hear that you're happy and you, you 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 like what you're doing. And in talking with you privately, you you seem stoked. And um, you mate, I couldn't be happy for you.
1: Thank you. And, and look, um, uh, full credit to all your efforts out there, Kirk, because it's people such as yourselves that um, continue to um, motivate me to to uh, to try and contribute value. So we, we we live in a really fortunate society in Australia. We're affected, but we're not affected so much that we can't still strive to do great things with a cup of coffee so um i look forward to hearing uh other people speak on your podcast and, and i really appreciate the opportunity to share some of myself with you
0: well uh yeah just on that we've we've i've recorded two so far and i've got some absolutely um awesome guests coming on which i won't spoil right now but with there's there's some awesome content coming for for the sub-zero coffee podcast and and as we've sorted touched on lightly today that the future of coffee is absolutely frozen so um yeah exciting um you know though right now there's some there's some things to certainly be concerned about in the world we must keep um keep being positive and you know the the industry will be here after all this is done um i'll take i'll take certainly um everything you've spoken about today i'll I'll take that on with great confidence and I, i think it's very valid credible information that we've uh that you've shared today and yeah so thank you so much for coming on today ross it's
1: been my pleasure kirk thanks for having
0: me no worries all right